Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison Third. I'm Louis Fertel. Uh, I was looking at the cast list for Barbie, and I think it, it will turn out we are in this movie, based on everybody <laughs> I'm seeing. The Barbie posters have come out. There are 24 of them. People I completely forgot were in the movie are in this movie. Emerald Fennell is a pregnant Barbie. Dua Lipa is a blue-haired mermaid Barbie. Though I have to tell you, I think there's only one A-plus Barbie in this stack, A-plus Barbie poster, and it is Issa mm-hmm. Rae. Because this is what I thought the movie was going to be. She has a plasticine smile on. It says, this Barbie is president. And then she's mm-hmm. wearing a sash that says president. Okay, satire. I'm there. Let's do it. Oscar Wilde. Whatever. <laughs> but the main slogan for the movie is, she's everything, he's just Ken. Referring to Margot Robbie as Barbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken. And Mm. I don't know what that means. Is that like a dig at Ken's identity? Are we exploring the, you know, dramaturgical beginnings of Ken? I want to know. It means women are everything. Ah, As you know, I disagree. (laughs) Okay. They are everything. They are the sun. They are risen up from the earth. What is this Jill Scott Heron (laughs) poem you're doing? (laughs) Um. The, some of the Barbies are very um, goofy. Uh, Dua Lipa's Dua Lipa as a mermaid Barbie though is is maybe going to be everything for me. Yeah, right. So some of these just feel like they set up a, a PR photo booth and people ran in and got photos. Uh, like Michael mm-hmm. Sarah, I agree that's Michael Sarah. He doesn't look Barbie ready for this movie. But again, <laughs> we don't really know what is going on plot wise here. So it actually, they do a good job teasing what will be, I'm sure, a surreal experience. I will say um, I'm very happy for my friend Scott Evans, whose poster I would say is very cute. You guessed it, he's a kid, is at least a funny way to write kid. And he's yeah. just got like a tank top and a cowboy hat on. And also, knowing Scott Evans, it's going to be a gay Ken. So as, yeah. as opposed to these sort of teasing it gayness things that are going on with the other posters, we have one who... I'm sure is uh, legitimately gay. No, also seeing Scott Evans, I immediately think, oh, is this a poster for a dodgeball meetup in West Hollywood? No, it's a legitimate <laughs> film. I also want to give a shout out to Hari Neff. Um, it's a poster, let's sell the poster, which is fun, like all the other ones, but she put a post online uh, about how, um, you know, trans women... Um, you know, going back to the ballroom community, um, refer to themselves as the dolls. Um, and so how important being in this movie was for her, you know, like Barbie's the ultimate doll, uh, but about how when it looked like she wouldn't be able to do the film because of a scheduling issue when she was cast in it, she wrote like a note to Greta Gerwig about the importance of being in this film for her. And she reposted that today along with her poster. So I thought that was very... Um, lovely. 
But then there's the teaser trailer, which just dropped. And I um, think it's really cute. I like I like that it went straight for kitsch. Yes, it's very the Brady Bunch movie vibes, which is we are aware of what the source material is. And we are going to hit this parody extremely hard and with the widest pupils you've ever seen. So that is uh, very encouraging. Uh, Ryan Gosling going for broke. There is a gay entendre pun at the end of the trailer that I don't know that I'm obsessed with that Simu Liu is uh, leaning into. But you also got Kingsley Benadire, who is extremely good looking. And I haven't seen much of him since uh, One Night in Miami. Apparently, he's going to be on an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show or something, which means I will not see more of him in the future. <laughs> uh, I was I had forgotten that he was in this movie, and I was shocked that he was one of the initial posters that dropped uh he's so cute and i probably will see him yeah you will agents of shield <laughs> kate mckinnon's in this she plays a barbie who does the splits a lot all right also greta gerwig i think is one of the few celebrities whom i've not heard even a dubious word about she's obviously just a brilliant writer someone who's probably um you know it seems like someone who might have been bored with what she was offered actor wise and now she's creating this stuff that's all fabulous well, right down the line there's one red flag. She's married to Noah Baumbach. Ah, that's right. Yes, I remember now. Though yeah. that said, I watched. <laughs> I think I think we talked about. Um, I watched Mistress America recently. So good. That's like a very underrated 2010s uh movie, and she gives a sterling performance in it. One of those movies where it could go awry because she's supposed to be saying something kind of quirky at any given moment, but she there really is like a weird, believable uh kind of daffiness to the character that really works. Mm. Anyway, I'm joking. I obviously do love um, Noah Baumbach. I'm squid in the whale hive. Oh, please. No, that's the movie that makes you understand Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. I'm just so angry I had to watch White Noise. So Right. Oh, yeah, I see. You're still that's better. That's about it. Um, Wait, can I say something else about dolls that I just thought about? I, I just okay. thought about this now. Sorry, I'm popping off. Do you know what album <laughs> I listened to straight through the other day? PCD by Pussycat Dolls. That, mm. that what we think about the album Teenage Dream should be thought about PCD. Every track, uh. bangerinis. <laughs> Listen, the Pussycat Dolls were the ultimate dolls. PCD is maybe my second favorite. To be honest, I prefer Doll Domination. Well, there's only two, so I mean, you're saying it's their worst. It's fine. <laughs> doll Domination has I hate this part, and when I grow up, I don't know if it has anything else. Uh, it has bottle pop. It has that's what all right. you think about that. It has taken over the world. Who's gonna love you? Magic Halo in person. What you call it? Okay, just gonna name all the tracks. Great. It has a cover of that Jane Child song. Don't want to fall in love. Jane Child. One of my one of my favorite nose chained performers of all time. <laughs> um. Speaking of, and one last tangent before we start, you 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 said the word quirky, and it yes. reminded me. Do you know there's still people on dating apps who refer to themselves as adorkable? What the fuck are they? 2011 Fox employees. <laughs> it's you forget that like words like that that get introduced into the lexicon. Like they really stick with some people, and they're like, you know what? I'm going to describe myself like they describe Jess in New Girl. Right. Also, I think that's a word where you're not allowed to describe yourself with it. I think it has to come from something else, somebody else. It's like camp. Like, if you're calling yourself camp, then you're doing it on purpose. And what are we even doing? 
That's fair. Also, who would call themselves adorable in person? Or maybe I would. I don't want to be rude. I'm adorable. I'm here. Yeah, not re- not ready to make friends or not here to make friends or whatever. I'd say that. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we have a fun episode this week. I actually can't believe the episode that's coming up. I'm like clutching my head. <laughs> we have um, an actual icon uh, here with us this week. And I know we say that all the time. Right. But we're not talking about like, you know some off the street icon okay this is this is this is off she, the she, street she's, icon she's been she's been in it okay no there there are you know actors we love then there's you know uh, esteemed actors and then there's a very rare class of people i would call goddesses and this is one of those people yes we have the wonderful Rachel Weiss here. Guys, can you believe Rachel Weiss is on this show? She shouldn't even be looking at us. What is going on? It's not right. I feel bad for her. And to celebrate Rachel Weiss, we're doing a whole segment about blind spots in her catalog. Uh, Ira watched a little movie she did called The Constant Gardener, which she stomped to victory at the Oscars that year with that performance. And I watched about a boy, which I had never seen before. And let me just which say I about it. I cannot him. believe. Isn't that weird? And because I, I fucking love Hugh Grant. I love I love actors who they do their one thing and you better fucking like it. And here he is <laughs> being a bastard yet again. Something about that movie I didn't realize. So uh, Peter Hedges is one of the writers of that movie, Oscar nominated, mm-hmm. who's the father of Lucas Hedges. And then also Paul and Craig Whites, who are uh, acclaimed in many respects. They are the sons of Susan Conner. Do you know who that is? I do know that name. Susan Conner oh. was Oscar nominated for the Douglas Sirk Imitation of Life. She plays the mixed race daughter in that movie who has kind of a breakdown. Very unusual oh. role in the 1950s. Mama! Yeah. Mama, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm black now. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> Sobbing at the um, casket. That is a classic. Okay? I love that fucking movie. Please. Right, that, Juanita Moore. Way, that would have been a great win. Yeah. By the way, internet, that's what um, passing looks like. Okay, there's been a, there's been a lot of stupid conversation from people who what denotes like white passing or not. And someone referred to Halle Berry, and I was like, "Baby, Halle Berry is not crying on a casket because she denied her <laughs> black mother her entire life." Okay, you're saying that happens a lot. Okay, great. Um, I just saw I mean, by the it way, it happened footage- to me last week. Oh, okay. I saw footage of Halle Berry at a drag brunch in West Hollywood. Fully, like, gr- <laughs> fully like MTV's The Grind grinding on some drag queen last week. I had never seen anything like it. She always seems like one of the most fun celebrities. Yeah. No, I think she, there's a very talkative vibe her. about her. Yeah, right. Exactly. No. Dorothy Dandridge has been introduced <laughs> and she's sticking around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she's playing bingo with the queens. <laughs> Uh, and then we're also going to discuss what we've been watching. Uh, and unfortunately, it hasn't been anything good. <laughs> this is that one of those weird, it's that weird time of year where like, there's not too many esteemed movies coming out. Like next week we get the Super Mario movie and at least there's a lot of hype about that. So we'll probably talk about that. Mm-hmm. But there's just not much in the realm of, I mean, I know you love Succession. We'll probably talk about that. But there's just not a lot going on that I care about right now. Mm. Well, We'll get into all of that and more when we're back with more Keep It.
Get ready to be transported back to 1973 New York City. No, I'm not talking about one of Lewis's old movie references. I'm talking mm. about Stiffed, the new podcast from Crooked Media and iHeartRadio. In this eight-part series, host Jennifer Romolini takes you on a wild ride through the rise and fall of Viva, the erotic magazine for women started by porn king publisher Bob Guccione that rocked the publishing world. With a team of feminist writers and editors behind it, Viva, in its original form, had full frontal male nudity. Imagine. A fashion section run by Anna Wintour and cover stars like Bianca Jagger. But were they doomed to fail from the beginning? Check out the first two episodes of Stift right now. Listen for free on your favorite podcast platform. All right, Lewis. I went into... um, Criterion this weekend. Oh, sure. And, uh, I watched two of the most important movies of our time. Okay. Judging by the way you said that, you're lying. But <laughs> I can't wait to hear what they are. You know what I'm setting you up for nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Murder Mystery and Murder Mystery 2. Oh, right. So you're exploring the chemistry between uh, Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston. And what did uh, you come up with? Let me tell you something. You could rub two sticks together and you would get more chemistry (laughs) than Adam Sandler and Jennifer (laughs) Aniston have on screen. Not that I can think of any screen pairing he's had that was rife with chemistry. Maybe uh, Emily Watson in Punch Drunk Love. I'm trying to think. But certainly, you know. Drew Barrymore in 50 First Dates. I would argue they have a fun chemistry. Yeah. This is the epitome of hot actress uh, married to comedian. Um, on, Which is an affliction you know, that on, occurs on sometimes. TV. Yeah, It right. is a thing that occurs. It is a thing that occurs. Um, famous comedian, though, you know? Uh, it never makes sense in the, the world that they're depicted. Got it. Because in this world, Adam Sandler is a NYPD cop. Um, love them. And <laughs> Jennifer Aniston is a hairdresser. Oh, not this. That's very like the next best thing where Madonna lives in a $25 million house and she teaches yoga. And actually, they could very well be from Chicago and not New York. I have no idea. (laughs) Whatever. I digested both of these Part of the mystery. Yes. (laughs) I digested both of these movies this weekend and I remember very little about them. But here's the thing. Uh, Jennifer Aniston was, you know, talking her shit this weekend uh, in a latest interview uh, where she did that thing where um, people bemoan cancel culture that hasn't actually happened to them. Oh, sure. And she was talking about how you you can't even you couldn't make friends now, not this because again. people are because people are talking about how offensive it is online. And my question is, who who is talking about <laughs> friends being offensive online? Like, who is taking time out of their day to write friends? Man, here's all the offensive jokes in it. I feel like the one thing that people just always say is, there's all white people in this show. Right. And, and that's are. about it. But also, they were saying there's a lot of white people in Friends in like 1995. So Correct, correct. You've also, heard this before. Also, first of all, just Jennifer Aniston, if she literally is bemoaning cancel culture, again, tell me the person who was canceled that you're upset about. These people never do that because what they're skirting is 
having to name somebody who was unjustly criticized and then that never happens anyway secondly i feel like all we do is try to remake friends like every comedy is like (laughs) here are these hot people hanging out you couldn't make friends today it's all we do anyway just like ray charles i had aniston on my mind (laughs) so what okay (laughs) and so that's how that song goes sure yeah so this weekend i was hungover and i logged on to netflix and truly i was met with 1000 ads for murder mystery too and in every other category on Netflix, they were pimping the original murder mystery for me to watch. As if Agatha Christie wrote it herself. By the way, you no. would think I would really jump on these movies as they're like whodunits, right? Can you solve them along with Adam Sandler? No. Oh, that is Here's upsetting. What am you I doing? Yeah. Here's the thing. There's a few characters and you can sort of figure out who did it. It's very obvious who did it in... Um, the second film, the first film, it's very obvious who one of the culprits is. There's two culprits in the first film, but they're more capers than okay. they are who done it. Because what happens is someone gets like in the first movie, uh, they're going on their honeymoon 15 years later um, because they never had time to. And he's broke. And I'm still wondering why she's married to this man. But anyway. Uh, 15 years later, they go to Europe on a vacation, and while they're on a plane, they meet Luke Evans, who's the son of this billionaire, and he invites them on his yacht for the weekend. And okay, then great. the billionaire gets murdered, and then they get framed for the murder, and basically they're being chased through Monaco, trying to solve the murder as a killer is trying to murder them. I have absolutely no problem with this so far. <laughs> yeah, the problem is you're not really figuring out who it is. It's mostly just Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston running through the streets. Got it. Got it. Being chased. You know, there's no real sort of investigation element. And then at the end, there's a whole, well, we know who did it moment. Um, That is kind of fun. And listen, the movie is not good, but it's not amazing. It's just sort of there. I'm sort of digging the romancing the stone vibe of the movie, though. You know, it's like, oh, they have to swing across some vines because, you know, we're falling in love and they're after us. That's sort of fun. The jokes are kind of abysmal and there's like, they, they don't have the chemistry. Ah, yes, so it's sort of just, it's sort of just there. But I will say that Murder Mystery 2 sort of just ignores the fact that you even are trying to solve a mystery. Uh, and it's just, and it's just pure fun. So I would say that Murder Mystery 2 is actually quite enjoyable. Wow. I'm shocked by this development. Um, to defend Murder Mystery 2, I've never felt lower on Keep It. And yet here we are. <laughs> Um, a sort of caper. Do you know what I watched over the weekend I'd never seen before? You ever seen Married to the Mob? Yes. Oh, my God. A star performance from Michelle Pfeiffer. I can't believe I've never seen this movie. First of all, it explains the beginnings of Mercedes Rule, who will win a supporting actress Oscar a few years later. Very important. But otherwise, do you know what else I didn't understand about this movie? Look, I think speaking of Margot Robbie in the Barbie movie. Margot Robbie in Babylon, did she crib Michelle Pfeiffer's performance in Married to the Mob? It's like the same thing and the same look. (laughs) And the voice. Yeah, no, very shocking. Again, it's a movie that takes place in the 30s and she seems like she's dressed and sounds like a Madonna wannabe in Babylon. Very baffling. Anyway, uh, I had never seen this movie. Dean Stockwell, former former, uh, child star, Oscar nominated in this movie too. Great. Also, David Matthew Byrne Modine. Did the music. Yeah, David Byrne did the music. Matthew Modine, who, you know, is here and there and stuff, but he's one of these James Spadery 80s actors that I feel like has been largely lost to time. Really good in it, too. I was really impressed with this movie. I thought it was fun and like 
unpretentious and also eye-popping. Every actor is dressed to the nines in it since, you know, it's a gaudy mob movie. I cannot remember which play he was in for the life of me, but I did interview Matthew Modine um, from our college newspaper when I went to Loyola Chicago. Oh, how nice. I could not land a single great interview when I was in college. I interviewed Paula Poundstone when I worked for the Daily Iowan and Mm -hmm. otherwise, oh, and Dan Savage, who was was, uh, still Seattle sex columnist at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. Otherwise, no one would talk to me. And can you imagine? They were like, Iowa City, not sure that's real. You, an intrepid reporter, just trying to make something happen. That's right. Oh, no, please. And that, <laughs> that same summer, I went to, uh, or between my junior and senior year, I went to uh, uh, Los Angeles, interned for The Advocate, and I just emailed Perez Hilton out of the blue, who was very popular at the time, and I was like, can I tail you for a second? And he said yes, and then I went to a party with him, and I was kicked out for not having the proper credentials. So that's the kind of reporter I came. I just sucked. He set you up? That's right. Yes. I was kicked out of this event that was a Tory Spelling PR moment because they were kind of friends at the time. I had taken a bus mm. to Malibu. I met the indignity. Well, to be fair, Tory Spelling probably took a bus to Malibu to go to their <laughs> own event. <laughs> the stars, they're just like us, unfortunately. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a long time, but a crazy... Anyway. Uh, also, something I have watched that's come out in the past year... Daisy Jones and the Six. Okay, this show is allegedly made for me. Too generic. It feels the like a photo. The music is not good. And the music is not good either. Even though I love Riley Keogh, I've said this before, the greatest gap in talent between granddaughter and grandfather in terms of acting ability is Riley Keogh and Elvis Presley. It makes no sense that she is as good as she is. <laughs> Elvis would be outacted by Anne Margaret, who, by the way, was not even a good actor yet. And all of those movies. And uh, Shelley Fabre and Mary Tyler Moore, that one time she played a nun. The movie was called Change of Habit. Don't watch it. Mm. All right. Uh, was was it a precursor to um, The Flying Nun? It, Flying Nun would have been contemporaneous, so they would have been competing. Okay. A lot of nuns going on in that period. And yet not as good as The Nun Story with Audrey Hepburn. Recommended, 1959. Okay. One of my um, favorites of hers. I don't particularly love Daisy Jones, to be honest, but, you know, I've been, um, you brought it up. I've been enjoying Succession, by the way. And I will say that my problems of last year are gone. Which is? I thought that, I really thought that they were sort of like spinning in place in season three and not a lot was happening to change the dynamics. But the dynamics have like completely blown up in the second episode of the fourth season here. And I feel like it really is ramping up to a conclusion. Uh, And I'm excited that we're in this era of shows getting to have conclusions again, since everything sort of just either goes on for too fucking long or it gets cut viciously before it's supposed to end. But I will say HBO seems to be the one place that has always done this ever since we've been watching HBO shows. Mm. Can I voice a complaint about Succession? I watched the last episode, and I I am not Mm. caught up. I had no business watching this episode. Some of the humor on this show runs a little repetitive to me. Like like one character says something, and then somebody responds with, how about anything else? Or uh, did you really just say that? That sort of stuff. And it's like, we had like a million seasons of Veep. We're done with that now. We need to advance (laughs) beyond like sardonic bastardliness. Well, I mean, the British are sardonically bastards. Okay, but they're not British on this show. 
True, but the creator, Jesse Armstrong, is British. All right, yeah. Just I, I feel like the Kieran Culkin character is a little repetitive. Uh, but, by, but Matthew McFadden remains one of my favorite actors. And the Pride and Prejudice from the 90s, his performance is an all-timer. So. I feel like the, the, the writing and dialogue for me is really sort of some of the best on TV. I just love the wordplay. I love, I love how the character – you know, I love watching smart people on TV again. No, generally speaking, I do support. Also, Sarah Snook, I mean, we did, we need to have like a full caucus one day about unclockable Australian accents because her real life accent is full kookaburra. And then on this show, she is so convincingly American. It's disturbing. Why are they so good at this? Well, you know, they spend all their time trying to escape um, the prisoner, um, the island. The oh island sure, from the prisoner. That's what I. Just, <laughs> that's what I feel like Australia is. It's the island from the prisoner. Uh, and so, what else are they going to do? Did you know that Australia got rid of their national anthem and now it's just vibes? Isn't that crazy? I love that. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> we should do the same, at soccer do games. The same thing. At soccer games, someone thing. just says "just vibes" and they just stand for a second, and then they, <laughs> then the game commences. <laughs> Uh, we should replace ours with that um, Lil Uzi song, I Wanna Rock. <laughs> I think it should be When I Grow Up by Pussycat Dolls, now that you mention okay. it. Okay, okay. Um, America's been growing up for a while, Lewis. When's it going to get there? I, right. Great thought. You should write yeah. that for Salon.com. I'm going to send it to Positive America. I think that should be their new slogan. Those boys always need help. Yeah. Um, all right. When we're back, I still can't believe it. We'll be joined by Rachel Weiss. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Today's guest is a true gift to cinema. Couldn't be truer. She's got an Oscar, yes. a BAFTA, an Olivier, and she's met an actual mummy. What more do you want from her? You can catch her next in the mesmerizing and chilling Amazon series Dead Ringers, giving us twice the vice, playing twin identical doctors. Please welcome to Keep It, Rachel Vice. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that. Lovely intro. Goodness. I mean, thank you for this series. I was at the premiere last night, uh, and it was amazing. Truly, truly fantastic. I've been a fan of the original Cronenberg film, and it was so nice to see this adaptation um, of it. Were you a fan of the original um, and sort of what inspired you to step into this world? Yes, I was a really big fan of the original. I saw it. Possibly when it first came out, um, I was a teenager and I just never forgot it. And I think over the years, it's become such an iconic film. Um, and yeah, it just haunted me and it stayed with me. So I one day had a 
daydream. I was thinking about projects to produce and develop. And I was thinking about sisters as an interesting, like fertile ground for drama. And I thought, oh, what if? And I said to uh, a producer, Sue Nagel, Anna Perner, I said, what do you, what do you reckon, uh, Dead Ringers with two female doctors? And she said, oh, that's a, that seems like a good idea. And yeah, we <laughs> took it from there. Also, I, I just want to talk about this this movie, the original, lingers in my head too. But And, and of course, Jeremy Irons' performance is fantastic. Genevieve Bujold, fabulous in it. It also sticks in my head because it is wildly disturbing. Just some of the images in this movie, you have to like clutch your face and look away. It's so shocking as, you know, many Cronenberg movies have that quality. But um, are you comfortable with like disturbing content? It's just to me a crazy movie to bring back because it's so singular and how honestly gross it is. Mm, mm. Well, what interested me about the original film was the psychological complexity about the codependence between these brothers and how twisted that was. But also in the original film, they are having such fun in Manhattan. They're the top of their game. They're brilliant. Their careers, they always have a martini in their hand or at some party with a, another hot woman on their arm. And they're having a blast. And I, I love that mixture of um, the idea of professionals who are flying high um, in their in their public careers, but in their in their private lives, it's 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 dysfunctional and twisted. So they're having a lot of fun until they're not. It's not all gross and twisted. Uh, there's a lot of joy too, I think. Absolutely, and but I would say what what's also so interesting about you know the translation from Cronenberg to this version is that what becomes a lot of the what you would say is quote unquote grotesque is just a lot of close ups. You know the one particular scene in the first episode with a lot of childbirths happening, you know? And I think that that is so interesting to take and just thrust right on screen because, you know, it's this mix of the miracle of life, but also, you know, showing like what women's bodies are actually going through, through the process. Um, Did you feel like um, there was a lot of fun to be had with just sort of um, taking that and sort of, taking it to like a sort of extreme, almost even sort of camp, um, but dark horror vibe. Uh, And also just the difference in having two women um, be the leads instead of the men. Because I will say that, you know, with Jeremy Irons, you know, having the time of his life at a fertility clinic, you know, in like the 90s, there is sort of like a very like creepy element to it being from a man's POV. Yes, yes. Was really interesting everything you've just said. So I'm just <laughs> absorbing and trying to like. Um, I mean, I think, I think for the story uh, line, Alice Birch, the the writer, creator, showrunner, extraordinaire of this of this um, piece. I think for she and 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 for me, it was very for her and for me, it was very um, important to show what maternal healthcare look like at this moment in time because they both have these massive dreams, like crazy big dreams of completely changing the world. Um, Beverly in, in, um, and Lisa said Belliot, which would be the combo of them. Beverly in relation to um, the way in which women give birth and Elliot in terms of the science of uh, fertility and uh, 
they both have crazy big dreams. So before we went into the kind of more like bananas, heightened operatic territory that the later episodes get into, we really wanted to make the case for, well, why are their dreams even necessary? What's wrong? What's wrong with healthcare? What's wrong with the the way in which women give birth? So we we showed all those stories for for that purpose to then kind of go into these uh into the future episodes. And in terms of the um childbirth scenes in that first episode, I think Alice and I were just really interested in in seeing them. It's something that um neither of us had seen in stories um before. It's what the twins do. They they deliver babies and, and Jeremy Irons's character, as you, you pointed out, there they they really work on just fertility and gynecology. Mm-hmm. So these these two women deliver babies. So it's what they do every day. It's as ordinary to them as you and I speaking to each other now. Mm. Um, we're just doing our jobs and they're just doing their jobs. So we were just interested in in really uh, just I- examining that from their point of view. But yeah, I agree with you. There are, it goes into a lot of different tones that are, you know, darkly humorous, sometimes camp, I, to quote you. Um, yeah. And the second episode with the almost Sackler S family is really sort of like, really just like a searing satire, you know, in sort of like a succession sort of way where it just like really attacks a certain sect of rich, you know, people in this country. Yes, yes. And and Beverly has this very p- ideologically pure dream, but she agrees to take money from this these Sackler like uh couple family. So so she has uh compromised. She's highly morally <laughs> compromised. So there's a lot of complexities like that in this script, which are quite delightful, I think. I'm often too busy thinking of you as a quote-unquote powerful actress that I forget that you are also a hilarious actress. I mean, just like over the years, I think of like the line readings you've given. I mean, like it is almost painful to think about the favorite and like how deadpan you get and how cutting you are to the Emma Stone character. It's just like like, (laughs) scream out loud, you know, like Maggie Smith would be proud, that level of awesome deadpan um, humor. And I was wondering, when in your career have you felt the funniest? First of all, thank you for the Maggie Smith shout out. That's that's a very big deal for a British girl, as you can imagine. Um, when have I felt the funniest? Well, I mean, I think this is probably a really obvious thing to say, but when you're being, when people are finding you funny, it doesn't feel funny to you. I, I think the more committed you are and serious you are, like you mentioned the favorite. I mean, I was, I, I don't think, even think I knew that, it was funny. In fact, I didn't. <laughs> so I think it, the more committed you are, the, then it can end up being funny, I think. Yeah. Thinking about the filming of that movie, did you try a whole bunch of different ways to convey the really lacerating tone that those characters have with each other? Did you? Did it take a long time to settle on the tone? Or was it always apparent on the page how, you know, uh, bleak the humor was and yet also powerful uh, altogether it is? Well, um, Yorgos Lanthimos, who directed it, he would just say, do it faster. Wow. <laughs> so he was he he doesn't ever um, talk about the scenes or the acting or the intention. In fact, one day I, I said to him, am I doing the, something? I asked him a question. And he just said, Rachel, I'm Yorgos. And I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't. <laughs> he, 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 you don't discuss things. So he'll just tell you to go faster. So how he... He gets that tone that you're describing is a kind of alchemical mystery to me. I don't, I don't know how he does it, but 
he does. I would also um, say that it's it's so surprising too that you have so many roles that have become um, iconic just to queer people. Um, just not even from Dead Ringers, um, where you have um, a relationship with um, an actress in the series. But, you know, you've got um, Rachel McAdams, like, spitting in your mouth in disobedience. Um, you've got um, the favorite. Or maybe you spit, spit in hers. I spat in her mouth, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Te- I had it the other way around. I mean, listen, I'd take either one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, maybe she spat in mine. Actually, I, I don't remember now. It's, it's Sorry, sorry. It's small, no. small details. <laughs> um, and then even the favorite and some of your other works. I mean, you know, like, um, wh- what has it felt like just having, I guess, this reception um, from a large part of your fan base? Do you even get, you know, sort of that you have this large fan base um of a queer variety and also like what goes into picking sort of roles like that um for you well it is extremely flattering um what you're telling me and um <laughs> i have been told it a few times um but i i don't i'm not on social media or i mm-hmm. i'm i'm not perhaps properly aware of it but i'm extremely uh flattered Sloppy. <laughs> no, it's like you and Kate Blanchett sort of feel like sort of our preeminent sort of actresses who do yes. these sort of like really intense um, sort of roles of women who are in relationships with other women. Uh, and it's just sort of masterful um, work and interesting to see from both of you. Thank you. What lovely, uh, lovely news to get this morning <laughs> in uh, Brooklyn. You know, what came into my mind as you were speaking, as I was thinking of um, of queer female icons, like Betty Davis came into my mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I and I remember that, um, and she's someone that I look up to very much as an actor. I think she's brilliant. But she was in the first Dead Ringers film. There was a 1940s mm. black and white Dead Ringers where Betty Davis played uh, two sisters. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. They could never have them on the screen at the same time because... The technology didn't exist yet, but it's it's really really brilliant. And I mean, talk about campy. That is really campy. Mm. And then it, that is a remake of a Mexican film called Dead Ringers in in, in Spanish. So it, this is a re, this is a homage to a re, homage to an homage. So there's lots of layers of uh, remaking. <laughs> you mentioned Betty Davis. Are you somebody who's likely to watch? old movies a lot does that speak to you uh even now i think of you as such a um like definitively modern actor you know like like in, in the old days all of your lines would be delivered with a scream by somebody by like betty davis but we get such a you know calm assured deadly tone from you that i feel like is very uh this century well thank you and i but i do watch old movies yeah i, I love uh betty davis ingrid bergman Catherine hepburn yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, Betty Davis is like, wow. Betty Davis is one of the few celebrities I can think of where if she didn't exist, there would be like a hole in Hollywood history. Just the way she propelled through the decades, the like, I'm absolutely going to do it my way and nobody else's way. And then the amount of, uh, of course, iconic roles we got from her. She has 10 Oscar nominations, I believe. And all, all about Eve. Every time I watch it, there's some line I totally forgot about that's in A+. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the most extraordinary film. Marilyn, as you well know, you're more of a film historian than me, but um, Marilyn Monroe's first screen appearance where she just has that 
two lines or something saying, could you get my coat or something? I don't remember what she says, but you're like, who's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She has to tangle with Addison DeWitt. It's like, oh, God, you're, you're too innocent for this, Marilyn. Stop. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, have there been any, uh, I mean, you've, we've gotten the chance to work with so many wonderful um, actors um, over your career. Like, have there been any people who you feel like you've had particularly sort of um, a great time being with on screen or someone who you sort of like came away from um, the film or production being like you learned something new about yourself as an actor just from interacting with them? Well, I mean, there were so many actors on Dead Ringers that I mm-hmm. that I loved working with. I mean, J- Jennifer Ely. Oof, as, yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, her. I find her performance in in Dead Ringers pretty staggeringly good because she's so. I don't want to say evil, but she has zero moral compass, shall we say? Um, <laughs> and you can't take your eyes off her, and she's just so cool and calm and collected and honest, and doesn't raise her voice and She's just the coolest cat I've ever seen. The, the coolest bad gal I've ever seen. I lo- I loved watching her and Emily Mead, who plays her wife. I just thought they were the, just the most bizarre couple. And if you watch Emily Mead, and I don't think it was in the script, I think it's just something she did. She's always drinking a glass of milk with whatever she's eating. She'll have milk when she's <laughs> like a big baby. And actually, I love Emily's performance as well because you see a highly intelligent actress kind of playing dumb mm-hmm. and you, you see like the workings of her, of her mind behind the character. And you don't know if it's the character acting dumb or what's going on. There's so many layers there. So I, I love working with Jennifer and um, Jennifer and Emily and Michael Chernus, who's Elliot's best and only friend. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was just wonderful. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking of the, um, the actors that I just worked with, but of yeah, course. I mean, yeah, they were great. But Olivia Coleman is a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, she better, what a performance. Yeah. 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 She's a lot of fun. Jennifer Ely also really good in a movie called A Quiet Passion a few years ago with uh, Cynthia Nixon as uh, Emily Dickinson. But um, wow. yeah, must watch. Very good film. I haven't seen that. I must see it. It's Terrence Davies, isn't it? Yeah, yes. He's right. Quite, quite brilliant. Um. Uh, obviously, Brendan Fraser, your old co-star, just won an Oscar recently. What was it like watching this like e- extremely triumphant uh, moment for him? Just sort of ramp up out of nowhere, and he he didn't he didn't yeah. win the Oscar in a walk, but he like it, it was he was favored to win, and he won it. Yeah, it, I thought his performance was so brilliant. I loved the film. I thought it was this intense operatic melodrama, and it all took place in one room and there he is unable to move on a couch at the center of it and the world comes to him with these four four characters i thought i thought he was extraordinary and moving and yeah i sent him a text as soon as i'd seen it and just was like that was that was something else and um yeah congratulated him when when he won I and mean, it wouldn't couldn't have happened to a i know people say this all the time it sounds like a cliche but it really couldn't have happened to a nicer guy he's really a proper, like, just like a sweetheart, a total sweetheart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you're an Oscar winner yourself. How much does the ceremony mean to you in general? Like, do you look forward to the Oscars or do you think of it as like, you know, work in a way, you know, like the the season long campaigning, et cetera? How much of it is fun to watch or 
witness and how much of it do you feel like is, I don't know, a circus or something? Well, I think it's definitely changed over the years. I, it's become more, maybe more and more how you just, just described it. Um, but listen, it's, it's the biggest honor that you get as an actor from your community. So, um, it's quite surreal. It's quite surreal to, to watch it live, to watch it on the television, to be there and be nominated or then to actually win. It's sort of, it's so iconic. And the, the statue itself has such an iconic status. It's almost like you're in a, in a, inside a fantasy. It's, it's so unlike anything else. And so, so unreal. Yeah. Hmm. Um, one thing I really love about Dead Ringers is that you sort of get to play two characters that are very opposite of one another. And they sort of mirror what I would say are a lot of the roles that you've had before. You know, you, ha- you have sort of a um, altruistic sort of like um, nicer character in something like The Constant Gardener. Um, and, but then, you know, there's also you in Beautiful Creatures, you know, where you're um, really more of like a sort of like a morally great character, you know, like sort of which ones do you find yourself more drawn to? Um, or is there any character you've played that you feel like really feels more like your personality? Well, I don't really feel like any any of my characters really, although mm-hmm. the contradiction is like when you play them, you, you have to show up. So there are bits of you there probably, but it's all filtered through or it's all... It all begins with writing. Mm-hmm. It begins with writing. So Alice wrote these two completely distinct characters um, on the page. They're psychologically complicated. They're, um, they're, as I said, like brilliant at their jobs, but they have this highly dysfunctional, um, aberrant private life. They're like big babies. I mean, they don't know how to do their laundry or they have Greta there who's making them their food and they're they're um they have a lot of contradictions to them they're both both brilliant and totally messed up so when you get writing like that um it's just I've never had writing as good as um the writing that Alice did on Mm. the show it's I think it's really exceptional so you you take away that writing you you lock the door uh, of your study or your room where you're going to learn the line, wherever you are and then you just start working on the lines and 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 they speak to your imagination and then you just start to like cook up a a character like you like you know there's a recipe to cook a meal and uh you start cooking it and you start mm-hmm. doing that in your imagination so it's not really i don't really have like a i can't really say i'm beverly i will never choose between those twins i love them both equally <laughs> <laughs> speaking a bit of um even that process you know of like locking the study you know like really getting into a character um lewis and i are always interested when we have actors on who are married to other actors you know like so what's it like in a process where you and then your husband daniel craig are both maybe working on a project um do you sort of confer with one another about the projects that you're taking on do you sort of share like your process when you're getting into a character with one another i mean and he's such a fantastic sort of actor in sort of the same realm as you i mean i remember seeing him in um othello and really just sort of like loving that performance from him and i just kept thinking like is rachel seeing bits and pieces of this at home you know no, his Iago was, it was, that was an incredible production. Um, 
And in that tiny space in downtown Manhattan, it was like yeah. actors, you could touch them, right? You could like- He was delivering like a monologue like next to my face. And it was like, so such an wow. intense performance. Wow. Yeah, it was really, that was an, inc- that was a brilliant, brilliant production. Um, well, um, I guess his, his, the door to his uh, office closes when he's working on his, <laughs> on his characters. It's quite private. Yeah. It's not something mm-hmm. you really share. I mean, um, because it's just to do with your imagination. Um, so it's, it's sort of, yeah, not something you can really describe. It's just like you in conversation with your, with your daydreams, I guess. Um, so yeah, no, it's not something we, we, well, we try not to, um, try not, we have a family, so we try not to work at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes that doesn't work out. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's quite private. It's quite private. Yeah. It's not secretive. It's just, that's, that's what it is. And we both know that. So the door's closed to the office and, um, someone's doing some studying. <laughs> yeah. I guess so uh, I mean, my, back, back at school. My Sorry. final, our final question is, do you have a favorite Daniel Craig moment on screen where you were watching it and maybe it caught you off guard or you learned something about him as an actor you wouldn't have guessed from, you know, being married to him? Well, Benoit Blanc mm. <laughs> in Knives Out and Glass Onion is like, I don't know where he came from. <laughs> like, I've definitely, I've never met him. Uh, I've never met him around the house. So that's, that's like a, that's him and Ryan Johnson cooked up that, uh, that character. He's so funny. Um, and so like, so interesting. Yes. It's it's one of his definitive roles. I feel like now, and I feel like we're, um, did you introduce Daniel to Ryan? Cause you were in brothers bloom, uh, and you're fantastic in that film. I absolutely adore that film. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, no, I, I didn't, I didn't Mm. Ryan. Ryan reached out to Daniel when he'd written, um, knives out and offered him the bar. Um, I didn't, I didn't introduce them, but Ryan is, uh, talk about a, an imagination, you know, cause he, <laughs> he, he has so much like wit and humor. And then he loves that intricate. I mean, brothers bloom had it too. And, um, and the, you know, the, the intricate plot that's like a wind up puzzle box that has to slowly, slowly unravel. He's, he, he's so brilliant, Ryan. But yeah, I think they, they love working together. Also, that's mm. the kind of guy you can sit and talk about Betty Davis with for a couple hours. Like Ryan Johnson, just yeah. obsessed with movies. <laughs> yes, he's he's one of the m- most knowledgeable people. Have you met him on, on the show? On oh, yes. Shows? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, he's brilliant, right? Just brilliant. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah. Um, yes. Someone who reads murder mysteries, like for fun, like is someone you want to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he's he's a clever clever guy. Thank you uh, so much for being here. My God, what, one of the few um, truths about you know cinema going forward is like you know in the future we don't know what we're going to get, but when there's a new Rachel Vice project, we will be watching it. That is absolutely like on the docket every time. Oh well, thank you. I'm very that's very honored. Thank you. <laughs> yes, this series is. Truly, truly fantastic. And I'm not like just saying this because you're here. It's, I was saying it to Lewis. I was saying it to friends last night at the premiere. Um, people who had seen full episode, the full series were telling me like, I'm going to enjoy the rest of it. It is truly a, a mind fuck of a series. When you watch it 
um, listens when you watch it, like you're just going to be taking it in and you'll be like, what is going on? But at the center of it is you with such an incredible, incredible performance. Thank you. Well, it's def- we hope it's a Alice and I hope it's a ride. And as, we, <laughs> as I said, it begins in this kind of very grounded place, and then it it gets more and more heightened, and it gets into beyond what you've seen. It gets into the world of not sci-fi but near-fi. So it's sort of science fiction that's just almost within our reach scientifically, and it gets pretty operatic. And um, yeah, it gets quite bananas. I would mm. describe the world Ira and I inhabit as near fi. So I think we'll, yeah, <laughs> I think we're on board. So. <laughs> uh, thank you so much Thanks again. again for being here with us. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. I wish we, we were closer on the Zoom box, but. Yeah. Yes, I got, I got to see you in person at the premiere. You know, with distance, you just were so, so wonderful. So thank you so much. All right. See you later. Bye. See you later. Take bye, care. Bye. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. After talking with Rachel Weiss, we realized that this is too big of a get for one segment. So we're going to give you a couple extra doses of Weiss and talk about a couple of her projects that we have not seen before. Now, Lewis, yes. you watched About a Boy with Hugh Grant. My man. Yes. I love Our him. Man. I love I love him so by the way, just before we didn't mention this in the what um uh, what we've been watching um segment. I just saw Hugh Grant in Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, and he's so fun in that. And it's like it's it's such a contrast to people being like uh he was being a dick on the red carpet. He wasn't having fun, et cetera. And we've already discussed that. But it was just like, when Hugh Grant is having fun, he is having fun. Oh, and yeah. He's, he and Chris Pine and even Michelle Rodriguez uh, is so uh, just fun to watch in this. And then, of course, Justice Smith is in it. And we need a starring role for him immediately. Um. I was also going to say about Hugh Grant that once upon a time, I used to do a segment for MovieLine.com called My Favorite Scene, where we would ask people what their favorite movie scene was. Mm-hmm. Routinely, men would pick Hugh Grant dancing in Love Actually. Like, there's something mm. about Hugh Grant that speaks to, um, uh, uh, I think, men in general, but he's just so fucking fun. I think he, he's somebody who is self-serious because he is also, the talent is just on tap. He's amazing. And, and you can't keep your eyes up in every movie. Like... Four Weddings and a Funeral is a classic because of Hugh Grant. I talk about impromptu all the time on this, but that movie too. And in About a Boy, man, again, uh, he he plays a character, first of all, that I don't see a lot of, which is, um, first, he's just a, a rich, well-off person whose dad has sold a successful Christmas single in the 50s, and he's living off the royalties from that. And mm-hmm. he is unapologetically still just a lout. Somebody who is just <laughs> like walking around, has no job, 
he does lie to a couple of women, says he has a kid to, you know, uh, woo them or whatever. But just like a single good looking guy, probably 40 or so. And like, can we just see more of those? I would just like to. Let, they don't even have to be funny. I don't care. But um, he is so winning like... throughout this movie. And by the way, it's just crazy that there are two Nicholas Holt, Rachel Weiss movies, and they are about a boy and the favorite. <laughs> I like that you mentioned that he's just sort of like has this money and just sort of gets to hang around because I feel like some of the best movies are when, you know, shout out to um, Nepple Babies and, you know, intergenerational wealth or whatever. But some of the best movies are people where like they don't really have a defined job. They just have money and they're hanging around and you just get to see the story. Yeah, right. Just, yeah, we want something nice to look at. You know what I'm saying? We want the house to look like the Sims live in large. We want to see the fun things. Nick Hornby's work is sort of like, I feel like, proto-male Nancy Myers. Or Nora yes. Ephron-esque, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. About a boy is definitely that. High Fidelity also sort of like that, except he's working at a record store, but also working at a record store and still has money. So, you know. Also, this movie points out to me just the extremely weird track we have put Tony Collette on. Nowadays, you would only put Tony Collette basically as the lead in something. I know she was like a minor character in Knives Out, but that's like a pretty rare Tony Collette role these days. Once upon a time, it's it's like when you realize Francis McDormand plays the sister in Something's Gotta Give. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. Like you took that? Like you have like six lines or whatever. Obviously she's great in many supporting roles, like almost famous, whatever. But Tony Collette in this movie uh is a hippie type who has lots of uh uh she's very uh disturbed and uh, potentially suicidal, which seems utterly too dark for a movie like this. And yet, because it's Hugh Grant who has a, a bleakness bleakness to his humor, it ends up working out. I don't know. I never questioned it. I will say in this movie, um, Rachel is on my list um, because there's, she's at that dinner party scene. Uh, she's like, I just think all hip-hop sounds the same to me. Oh, excuse me. Somebody at the table says to her, and they don't explore the conversation, East Coast or West Coast rap? Who just throws that out? Who throws that out? That's such a, like, a Nick Hornby script. It's like, yeah. That's, uh, in the scene, she's sitting there, uh, and Hugh Grant is you know chatting her up, and the off-screen conversation is the most interesting part of the scene. Yeah. White people popping off. <laughs> Did you like the film overall? Yes. Um, I will. Th- I, I, I think it started better than it ended because it ends somewhat conventionally with a scene where Hugh Grant is helping out Nicholas Holt perform during a talent show. And, you know, they're, they're about to boo him and he comes in and accompanies him. It feels very familiar. But um, both of their performances throughout the movie, what a great kid performance from uh, Nicholas Holt, who is, I think, about 11 or 12 in that movie. And it's nice to see, you think of Hugh Grant as somebody whose humor in films comes from the fact that he's this dignified adult actor, but to watch a kid really match him tit for tat and be just as, um, not just deadpan, but a self-assured, uh, is really cool to see. I can't think of another movie like that where a kid and an adult, you know, like maybe like Paper Moon or something. That's a mm-hmm. movie where you're really disarmed by what a good actor Tatum O'Neill is. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um... That now that Natalie Leon, the professional, is it Natalie Portman? Oh yes, in that? yeah, where yeah. they killing mm-hmm. bitches. Um, <laughs> she, she she holds her own in that. The first great Natalie Portman performance, yes. Though as you yeah. know, I don't really stand her, which which makes me not like the other gays. 
all right, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- no, I, I'd forgotten that. Now, Nicholas Holt was the lead in that, too. And he is one of my favorite, you know, actors, to be honest. He was doing a lot of work in um, the menu yes. to make it watchable. I was overserved by Nicholas Holt in the menu. You know what I'm saying? I'm like yeah. Gene Shalit now. I write puns. Um, <laughs> Uh, he he was good, but I thought that movie was all about Janet McTeer. I thought she was the best in that movie. All right, so the film that I watched was The Constant Gardener. Which is an interesting movie to pick because one, obviously, Rachel Weisz won an Oscar for it, but two, she really stomped to victory with that performance. She won yeah. most of the precursors, and now we never talk about that movie. Well, here's the thing. I get why we never talk about it because it feels very much like an Oscar film. Yeah, uh, right. It's, you know, it's it's one of those... It's one of those heightened thriller films that is also about politics and what's going on in the world. And so the thriller element is there, but it's a lot of people talking about, you know, like other things that seem very much like, okay, this is a, a thriller for adults, you know, mm-hmm. but smart adults, you know, this, there's no, there's no Ivanovich shit going on here. Okay. Right, right, right. I mean, that is sort of a genre of the time. It's very Blood Diamond or something, yes. you know. I mean, that at least is more campy than the Caustic Gardener. Yeah. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is doing entirely too much in Blood Diamond. Uh, yes. No. Uh, as I've said, my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance remains Django Unchained because we actually made him play a character in that and not just a rich, mean person. There was something else <laughs> going on there that was exciting. And we didn't even nominate him for that. So strange. Anyway, what did you think of Rachel in The Constant Gardener? I thought she's so fucking good. You know, as I mentioned to her before, um, you know, she, she it's sort of like the opposite of some of the wicked characters that she plays, which doesn't mean that she's, you know, like sweet and meek by any means. I didn't want that to come across when I was when we were talking to her. But um, because the character, you know, takes the role of, you know, a dead wife um, that could just be dry as hell if she'd got nominated for like a boring version of this wife like it would have been a bit like um claire foy in the first man you know that that was that was sort of one of the most recent like wife roles where i was like what are we doing here right but rachel has so much to do in this film you know from um when she meets him, when she meets Ray Fiennes, um, in that sort of um, scene that she interrupts, um, where he's giving a speech, you know, about um, Iraq and everything, and uh, then you know she gets to play um, the international intrigue of it all. You know, she gets to play losing her child. You know, there's there's so much um, meat in this role for her to play, and she's only in about like forty five percent of the film. Also, Ray Fiennes pops up. Quite often, not like you know, it'd be weird if a uh, year went by and you didn't get Ray Fines. We just talked about the menu, but I still feel like we're due for like a proper Ray Fines appreciation moment. I mean, he he's nominated for a couple Oscars. Obviously, he is bone chilling in Schindler's List. Great in The English Patient, a movie that I would describe now as underappreciated. Like Seinfeld erased what was at the time like a groundswell of support for that movie. Uh, Juliette Binoche, of course, one of our fabulous best actors too, but. Ray finds in general, there's just like something so watchable about like the glassiness of his stare, and like you, you can just see the layers of a, a of an intelligent personality there, which is really um, on screen in Quiz Show, uh, where he plays a, uh, a Charles Van Doren, who was at the time a 
Time magazine covering sensation who goes on a game show, wins a whole bunch of times, and the big secret is the game is rigged. And he's basically chosen by the producers as a successor to Herbert Stemple, played by John Turturro, since he, since uh, Ray Fiennes is more uh, watchable and alluring as a TV presence. But that remains uh-huh. one of my favorite movies. I love Quiz Show. Um, and I also think that... Um yeah, he hasn't gotten that much real awards attention, except for like the Golden Globe nomination for um, the menu, um, probably since maybe the Grand Budapest Hotel. Right. And it wasn't really about him either. He was just part of a giant, you know, uh, Wes Anderson style ensemble there. But I really do love um, Ray Fiennes. And I feel like um, the end of the of, affair. So good. Yeah. It is still so weird to me, though, seeing him on screen with J-Lo. <laughs> that is I'm one of sorry. the weirder pairings. That is, yeah. that is a weird ass pairing. Okay, every time he's in Made in Manhattan, I'm like, he's gonna kill her. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most of the people she's with have a kind of like, I don't know, down home vibe, shall we say? You know, Ben Affleck, you can hang with. Uh, yeah, whereas nothing about him is casual, even in the slightest. <laughs> I thought he was great in the film, obviously, but what I really loved. Was seeing Archie Panjabi in this film. Right. Archie Panjabi's. The, by the way, what are we doing with her? Where is Nothing, she? Nothing. Okay. We va- we, Juliana vaporized her. I don't know what happened. Yeah. She put a fatwa on her. Okay. Yeah. There, Archie Panjabi has not been seen in anything since that split screen in The Good Wife. Right. I remember her in uh, that Gillian Anderson show, The Fall, for a split second. Otherwise, this is an Emmy winner. It's like Anna Gunn syndrome. What did we do with Anna Gunn? And she pops up in the film, and the way she pops up in the movie, it's really just, sorry, and the way she pops up in the movie, it's like, why aren't we seeing more of this actress on in film? Yeah. Like, she's so commanding um, on screen and, like, really holds her own um, with Ray. Um, and, like, they have, like, great screen chemistry together. So it's just like, wh- where is she? Now I will not be able to let this question go. What a disturbing problem we have. You would think there would be roles aplenty for her, too. I don't understand. Yeah. Although I will say um, Ray Fonz may or may not have um, said that he couldn't understand the vitriol directed at J.K. Rowling. But this okay. was in 2021. All right. You think, he's, you think he's done some reading since then? The British disappoint me. <laughs> I feel like she's only become more disfigured um, spiritually. Uh, (laughs) as a human being um, since then. So maybe like being around her, you know, I don't know, like the face is crumbling and whatever. um, Phantom of the Opera mask that she has on, um, you know, to make her still seem human um, is cracking or something. You know, I feel like in 2021 where she was sort of being, you know, like uh, an enfant terrible um, to now 2023 where she's like a full like Milo Yiannopoulos. Like it's, (laughs) it's, um, that someone's opinion would have changed, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, do, I do not mean to make light of the fact that she stands for something so vile now and says vile things, believes vile things. But it really did come on, I don't want to say slowly. Once upon a time it was, oh, she's following a couple of dubious accounts on Twitter. Oh, she's re- retweeting a couple of dubious people. And now it's where it is, where she's just the turf, number one ranked fucking turf. It's so wretched. It's so wretched. Lewis, I'm going to let you finish, but I've got a lot more to say about J.K. Rowling when we get to the Keep It segment. Oh, all right. All right. Let's get there. Let's get there. All right. We will be right back with Keep It. 
And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis, what year is your Keep It from? I swear it's from 2023, but in a way uh, also 1988, because let me tell you, <laughs> it involves Tracy Chapman. Um, mm. Luke Combs, who that's not somebody in my wheelhouse at all, covered Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. It sounds great. I love this cover. And my Keep It goes to actually all songs that aren't this cover, because do you know what he does in this song? He mm. keeps the lyric, now I work in the market as a checkout girl. And maybe that's just shocking to me because, you know, the tone of Luke Combs's voice is very um, villain in Boys Don't Cry. So it's mm. shocking that he can, you know, <laughs> <laughs> make such a bold choice. But then I realized, like, how for years and years have we had so many covers of, like, women's songs where they have to, where men change the pronouns or whatever? It's like, no, it's their fucking song. Like, just sing it as is. It's like, there's always been a weird pride issue with owning um, uh, f- femininity f- uh, from the uh, perspective of the person singing the song. I'm reminded of Once Upon a Time, uh, one of my favorite covers of all time is Natalie Cole's cover of Pink Cadillac by Bruce Springsteen. And at the time, he did not want her to do that song. And his quote, I don't know if this, I don't know if this came out only after the fact, but his quote was, it's not a girl's song. And to me, that's one of the few things Bruce Springsteen has ever said that I find a little, I don't know about upsetting, but jarring. Like I didn't expect mm-hmm. that from him. And I don't know. I, I think it's just so lovely to hear uh, a, a guy sing a song as it was intended in the first place and not needing to turn it into quote, his story. Uh, mm. I, I was pleased by it. And also kind of to say in general, I think Fast Car is one of the few songs, particularly 80s songs, that has not aged a single day. Not, nothing about the production on that song sounds like it belongs necessarily to the era of like Motley Crue or mm. Bon Jovi or whatever was happening at the time. Um, it just keeps gaining. Like there's no like pop culture reference in the song that makes you think, oh, it's definitely from this one time. I'm just shocked by... Um, how singular that song remains. I'm now thinking of Marnie, quote unquote, covering it in Girls on the last episode. (laughs) I mean, listen, it's a bit because technology hasn't caught up to where it's supposed to be. Uh, We're supposed to be living like the Jetsons, you know? So cars are still still fast. (laughs) We're still driving them. That's true, right? They're not all self-driving, et cetera, right? (laughs) You know what the keeping the checkout girl line reminds me of? Do you remember... The single um, by the group, um, the indie rock group, Black Kids. Uh, I'm not going to teach your boyfriend how to dance with you. I don't know this song. Um, it's like from 2008. Um, it was like a pretty popular song, but it was like it had like the chorus. You're the girl that I've been dreaming of ever since I was a little girl. And it was like an inside joke between him and his sister that they always used to say ever since I was a little girl uh, since they were kids. But it was that was always uh like a line that stuck out to me on the radio um, when I first heard it. Cause I was like, is this a cover? No, it's just the original song and it's funny to them. So by the way, I think just as a challenge in general, I think more songs should have the line. Now I work in the market as a checkout girl. I just like, <laughs> if, if in stairway to heaven, he just said, now I work in the market as a checkout girl. I would be a huge fan of that song. I think we might even be moving to that. Cause I feel like the way that straight people appropriate um, gay slang, I have definitely had at least, and not like, not like you know, like one of our straight friends who like hangs out with gays a lot. Um, I mean, like I've heard from other random like straight guys uh, where they will just say like "girl" 
sometimes. And I'm like, are they starting to pick up on that? That both worries me and thrills me. Because it is funny in general to refer to somebody as girl or a thing as girl. <laughs> Can you imagine like um, a very straight man like being mad at you or like you're in high school and like um, they're bullying you, but they're like using your slang now. They're like, where you going, sis? <laughs> That's tough. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> I will say at work where I'm surrounded mainly by um, straight people, I will casually just call them girl or if i know them really well maybe the f word which is funny <laughs> due to a straight person uh all right so my keep it this week i teased it a bit when we talked about jk rowling but yes it has been rumored now that hbo is developing a series based on the harry potter books where each season of the show would be represented by a different book. And what I have to say to that is enough. (laughs) Oh, my God. It also just feels like there's six IP objects out there that we are tapping again and again. The exact same ones. Like resources in Settlers of Catan. Yes. What would a TV series of Harry Potter add to the canon that we do not already have except for a bunch more money for HBO? You're really getting to the heart of the industry right now. It really is all about money, it feels like. I don't know. I've never had that feeling until right now. (laughs) But what I do have to say about it is you can already foresee what would happen from a Harry Potter TV series. It would include, one, whoever's writing it and creating it is going to have to do so much press about the fact that J.K. Rowling is... who she is. A, a, a literal demon from the hellmouth now. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to have to talk about that constantly and explain why you're working on a series that's putting money into her pocket. Yes, right. Um, and then all the people who've been calling out J.K. Rowling for being a turf, you know, and like just for generally being awful. Y'all going to start watching and um, live tweeting this show? Because <laughs> you know it'll happen. <laughs> Right. I I am always surprised to see people. I mean, I'm trying to even think of a a, a comparison. It's not like I'm out there being like, God, you know what? Single still slaps. Beat it. Like, I'm just it's not important for me to announce (laughs) that I'm still a fan of somebody who is so, uh, you know, wretched. But people really are out there being like, oh, talking about Harry Potter all the time, even though the conversation, if you're having an honest one, should go to what the fuck is wrong with this woman? Yeah. So I don't want to see it. HBO has weirdly like consistently been great. They've had off moments, but I feel like a Harry Potter series is not going to add anything to um, the HBO sort of um, prestige, you know? Just invent some other goddamn wizard, can't you? There ain't nothing special about Harry. Or, I mean, like, except for, like, the Game of Thrones thing, which, by the way, like, at least felt fresh because it was just coming from a book which hadn't been adapted yet. Um, HBO's done really well with, like, sort of, like, original material. You know, without sort of, or even if it's source material, you know, something like a Mildred Pierce, right? You know, like this just feels like Harry Potter is done to death. Let it go. Yeah. I mean, it's up there with like a Spider-Man or something. Like, I swear to God, I understand the story of this teenager shooting things out of his hand. I get it now. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like a... It's like a barista who just went through a breakup telling you to read Bell Hooks is all about love. Like, we get it. <laughs> does that happen to you a lot? It does. 
You have better baristas <laughs> than I do. Uh, anyway, that's our show this week. Woo. I'm going to go ahead and cool down from the um, vice situation. It just, it, again, I, some pe- certain people should not be looking at lowly writers like us sitting I here mean, gabbing about projects. <laughs> I already feel a type of way about having to have her remember whether or not she spit in Rachel McAdams' mouth or Rachel McAdams <laughs> spit in hers. But no, I'm she should have sure to think about Ra- that once a day. I disagree. <laughs> it's a good thing she does not have social media, by the way. I feel like there's like Rachel Vice, Kate Blanchett fanfic online. Oh, certainly. No, and Kate Blanchett's not online either. And for good fucking reason. She should be afraid of the queer community. We I feel like Kate Blanch- I feel but I feel like Kate Blanchett more than Rachel um sees it. Yeah. Well she's yeah, she's definitely been reporters definitely ask her about it all the time. Yeah. Too. Kate seems like the kind of person who's like you're hanging out with her and she sees you like scrolling Instagram or Twitter or something. She's probably like, let me see your phone for a minute. And like we'll <laughs> scroll through it and be like, oh that's what's going on on here. Now we're writing Kate Blanchett fanfic. See watch us. <laughs> It is we are so the problem. weird they have not been in a film together. That is fucking bizarre. Can they spar? I want there to be an actual duel, like Madonna versus Madonna in the Die Another Day video. I feel like dueling lesbians uh, is a role we need to see. And and they're both so good at playing them. All right. Yeah. That's for the universe that. to figure out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you again to Rachel Weiss for joining us this week. And uh, we'll see you next week for more Keep It. Don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. Plus, if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Keep It is a Cricket Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is filmed in front of a live studio audience. Keep it.